Welcome to the First Friends Church Podcast. This month, we are celebrating the Christmas season with our sermon series, Open the Door. During these weeks, we will see how God has chosen to open the door and invite us into a relationship with Him, despite our rebellion and despite our sin. God wants a personal relationship with you this Advent season. So Merry Christmas, and now let's go to our Christmas series with Pastor Nathaniel. If each of us are honest, we all have people in our extended family, or maybe for some of us in our immediate family, that we would be happy for other people not to know about. Whether it's because of something they've said, or their lifestyle, or a crime that they've committed, or maybe they're incarcerated, or simply because they are just because they're weird. Like, we, we whitewash them out of our stories. But when God gave humanity the family tree of his son Jesus, he actually went to extra pains to draw attention to those very people that we would normally want to hide. And in part, the way Jesus' genealogy is recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, it reveals, it actually shows us that Jesus came to earth as the Redeemer. So, so far in the Sundays of Advent, we've been first invited to open the doors of our hearts to Jesus as the seeker of lost souls. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Then the next Sunday, we were invited to open the doors of our hearts to Jesus, the suffering servant. And Jesus himself said, even the Son of Man, referring to himself, even, to the, Son of Man, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this morning, let's hear the Redeemer knocking at the door of our hearts, and let's open that door to him. If you don't have a hard copy Bible with you this morning and you'd like to borrow one so you can follow along, uh, the ushers are coming back down the aisles now. They have some copies. If you just raise your hand or catch their eye, they'll be glad to give you one. And I'll also say, if you don't own a copy, if you don't own a Bible of your own, just accept this as a gift from us. You don't need to return it. Just take it, keep it, read it. Now, the word redeemer, as it's used in Scripture, refers to someone who pays a ransom for the life of another. In other words, they buy back a soul that has become enthralled and enslaved to brokenness and sin and evil. And in case you're a little uncertain on that, that's everybody. If we're honest with ourselves, no matter how good we have tried to be, there are instances for all of us where we have failed. Jesus is the only one powerful enough and pure enough to pay that ransom. So our text this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew. The first 16 verses, verses 1 through 16, it's the very first passage of the New Testament. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible as a book, uh, it's divided into the Old Testament, the New Testament. And if you want to find the book of Matthew, you can either look in the table of contents, or if you open your Bible approximately to the middle and then take the second half of it and open it approximately to the middle again, you're going to be either close to the end of the Old Testament or close to the beginning of the New. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and he starts out 
Matthew starts out by giving us Jesus' genealogy. Now, let's be honest. When most of us come across a genealogy in Scripture, we read it really attentively. No, we skip it, right? Our eyes glaze over and we're like, I don't even know what begat means in the first place. Plus, it's all these words. I can't pronounce these names. I don't know who's who. And we just skip it. And that's understandable. But particularly in Christ's genealogy, there's theology and there's revelation that's given to us. In other words, God's saying something to us through this genealogy. And I would invite you to follow along as we listen to this passage, rather than, than me reading it, I want you to listen to, to this passage put to song by an artist named Andrew Peterson, and the title of the song is Matthew's Begats. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob, he had Judah in his kin. Well, then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez, he brought Hezron up and then came. Aram, then Amenadab, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah, who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar. Then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim. Eliakim had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliab then. He had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Now listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Christ. So, <clears throat> I wish I had written that song, but I have actually had an opportunity to hear Andrew Peterson perform it live a couple times, and uh, when he gets to that one line about Jehoiakim, you probably forgot it, but it says, he caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar. When he sings it live, he adds the phrase, that's not really scriptural, but it rhymes. So, just in case you were wondering. There are a number of ideas expressed in this genealogy. I don't have time to cover them all. So I want to focus on the one that, to an ancient Jew, would have been the most glaringly obvious. There are five women 
named or referred to in this list. And that fact was absolutely unusual and totally unnecessary according to the tradition of the day. So heritage was traced exclusively through the male line. Women were never mentioned in genealogies. Even if you trace the other genealogies within Scripture, women are not mentioned. And what makes this even more startling in Christ's story is that the story of each of these five women is attached to great brokenness or scandal, not always of their own causing, but caused often by things that people did to them. So if ever there were an opportunity to leave unpleasant things out that weren't even going to be missed anyway, this would have been it. So why would God say, no, I want to go out of the way to include these five women, even though normally they would be left out, and by including them, I'm going to be drawing attention to a lot of junk, a lot of brokenness, evil, deceit that goes into the history of my son Jesus. So let's briefly remind ourselves uh, of the account of these five women. The first was Tamar. Tamar's story is found in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar was twice widowed, having been married subsequently to two brothers. It's a sordid tale, but basically because she was deeply wronged by her father-in-law, Judah. Now, this Judah, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's one of the, 12, the father of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the largest tribe, Judah. It's that Judah, okay? He's Tamar's father-in-law. He wrongs her. I'm not going to go into all the details, but then Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. She becomes pregnant, and then when Judah hears about it, since Tamar was a widow and unmarried, he decides that he's going to execute his daughter-in-law for bringing such shame on the family. And at that point, she reveals to him, by the way, you're the father uh, of my child, actually of her twin sons, as we later discover, Perez and Zerah. Second woman mentioned is Rahab. And yes, she was a hero to Israel, right? But her lifestyle was shameful. Though God used Rahab to help the army of Israel conquer Jericho, that first city in Canaan. And that's admirable. But Rahab was a prostitute and she was a Gentile. She wasn't part of the Israelite historical ethnicity. Definitely not a respectable woman in Jewish eyes of the day. Ruth. She's portrayed in Scripture as an admirable woman, and, and she is, one who was faithful to her, her widowed mother-in-law, but she was also what was known as a Moabitess. She was part of the nation of Moab, and the Israelites had been specifically commanded by God that they were to never intermarry with the nation of Moab, totally off limits. And yet here we have this prohibited Gentile that's included in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Fourth, we have Bathsheba. Of the five, she's probably one of the most recognizable, even though she's not mentioned by name in the genealogy. Verse 6 says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Many of you know that story. Uriah's wife was the woman Bathsheba. And her story is one of the most broken of all. David, who is the king of all Israel, he's on the roof of his palace. He sees Bathsheba in the courtyard of her home down below. 
Um, she's the wife of one of his highest generals, Uriah. And David sees her as overwhelmed with lust for her, so he sends for her. And when the king sends, you go. So she comes to his palace. He sleeps with her. Whether it was consensual or not, it was abuse of David's position and power, and at worst, it was downright rape. David sends Bathsheba away, later finds out she's pregnant. Uh-oh, damage control. He tries to manipulate things so that her husband, his general, would come back, sleep with his wife, and therefore the child could be passed off as her husband's, but things don't work out that way. Then David conspires to have Uriah murdered so that he can cover things up by marrying Bathsheba and concealing the fact that her child had been conceived in adultery. So again, if there was ever something that could be left out, wouldn't this be it? And finally, we arrive at Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. We do know she was indeed a virtuous woman, fully surrendered to God, willing for Christ to be born through her. But at the time of her pregnancy, that, that was a scandal. And I've asked you this question before, but I want you to think on it again. Imagine that you have a daughter and your daughter comes to you one day. Oh, let me back up and say, your daughter's dating a guy that you're not super excited about. And she comes to you and she's like, mom, dad, I'm pregnant. But don't worry. Don't worry. I'm a virgin. And uh, the Holy Spirit put this child in me. I think most of us would struggle to believe that. And most of society at the time didn't believe it. So the assumptions were made, right? Uh, yeah, what, okay, we know what Joseph and Mary have been doing. So there was scandal associated with Christ's birth. All of society looked down on Mary and Joseph for their imagined sin. So what does this all mean? What does it point to? And how would it challenge or invite us to open the door of our hearts to the Redeemer? Three points. The first explanation is that the inclusion of these women in the genealogy show God's heart to elevate and value women in general. Because God intrudes with them into a tradition entirely dominated by men, and he elevates these women, especially ones who had suffered at the hands of society and or were condemned or demeaned for what they had done or what had happened to them, been done to them. Another truth, the second point, that the inclusion of these women in the genealogy bring about is that Jesus, in the words of our sisters and brothers down the road at First Christian Church, that Jesus is truly for all people. Two of these women for certain and likely three were Gentiles. Meaning, these were, they, were, they came from races or ethnicities that had historically been excluded from membership in the nation of God's chosen people. So they weren't part of it. They weren't supposed to be a part of it. And the interesting picture that we're given is that not only has Jesus come for them, but he's come from them in a sense. And with these inclusions, God's putting on display that Jesus, the Redeemer, came for all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, or history. There's no special ascension. No one gets an extra leg up or step up when it comes to redemption. 
Jesus came for everybody who will respond to him and accept him. And then thirdly and finally, the most compelling truth is that this genealogy illustrates exactly that, Jesus came as Redeemer. Each of these women, their stories brought scandal, brokenness, or sin into Christ's family tree. And let me be clear about something. I'm emphasizing the women because it was unusual for them to be included in the genealogy. That doesn't mean that the only brokenness in this story is from the women. Most of those men also have their own stories of profound brokenness. Uh, Manasseh, for example, son of Hezekiah. Manasseh was king of, of uh, Judah. It was probably the worst king there was. And the one highlight or low light of his reign is that he sacrificed, literally sacrificed, burned his children to death as an offering to the idolatrous god Molech. So, I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting that brokenness only comes through women. I'm just saying this is an over, an additional emphasis to the brokenness that God's bringing. So their inclusion here from a human perspective, entirely unnecessary, and yet it brings in deceit, incest, pregnancies out of wedlock, rape, abuse, murder, prostitution, disobedience, impurity. So picture this, even, even as it sits on the page in this column, that we have all this brokenness, all this sin, perversity, suffering, and depravity all flowing down into Jesus. And Jesus does what with it? He goes to the cross, destroying it, and annihilating it forever. So on the cross, Jesus pays that ransom for all the sin of everyone who will ever live and buys his people back from utter destruction. So in one of the verses that the Yost family read earlier from Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus, sinless and perfect, the Son of God, takes all the sin of humanity into himself and pays that ransom for all of it. And in this genealogy, God shows that he's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of his creation. He doesn't try to hide or deny us. No, he calls us to give him our sin, our brokenness, and allow him to destroy it. That doesn't mean that God is not ashamed or maybe not ashamed. God isn't disappointed in things that we do. God doesn't love everything we do. We're clear on that. You've heard me. I I love my sons. I don't love everything they've ever done. Ethan, our older son's probably tired, sick and tired of hearing me tell the story. He's like a year and a half old. He gets a hold of a, a quart of cooking oil and he goes to town all over the kitchen floor baptizes himself in oil entirely. Those clothes were useless from then on. Um, I was not pleased. I walked in and I, I, I perceived this artwork, and I was not pleased with the artwork. It doesn't change that I love and approve of Ethan as my son. So when the father looks at his creation, he's not pleased with everything we do, but his approval of us as his children does not change. Now, I do want to address 
just briefly what it means when Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What's the curse of the law? I don't have time to go into all the historical implications that this would have for the Jewish people, but I think we can illustrate it very clearly for us like this. The law reveals what perfection looks like. So it is a list of rules. And if you live out that list of rules to perfection, then you are perfect. And perfection is God's standard. So everybody, good luck with that. Your goal is perfection. And if you achieve that goal in everything your entire life, so it's not just about being, because perfection, right, it's not about being more or less. Like, you can't be more perfect. It's perfection or it's nothing. So I can't say, well, 99% is perfect. No, it's not. Well, it's almost perfect. It doesn't matter. That's not perfect. So after the service, if you are perfect, please come tell me. I won't believe you, but please come tell me. So that's the curse of the law. Here is, here's what's required for you to, for, for your life not to go into destruction. It's perfection. That's the curse. Because we all know, if we're honest, that we can't, we can't achieve that. We can't live perfectly. After, you know, and when I, when I ask somebody, we, we talk about whether we're sinful or not. You know what our, our first statement is always? Well, I've never killed anybody. That's great. I want to affirm that, and I want to encourage you in that. But I also want to say, really, that's our standard? Like, that's it? I've never murdered. Great. But when Jesus talks about these things, you know, he, he, in Matthew chapter 5 especially, he takes the external and he makes them internal. So he talks about the fact that that anger and rage that we feel toward others, and he likens that to murder. He's like, you've already committed murder in your heart. So it's not even just about what we do externally, but it's about what we feel and think and who we are internally as well. So the curse of the law is perfection. And we can't do it. And so Jesus, the Redeemer, does that in our place, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So every way that we've ever fallen short of perfection, Jesus takes into himself and goes to the cross and it's annihilated. And that's the ransom that is paid for you and for me. The ransom was paid with the life of Jesus Christ. And he dies with all of our sin on his shoulders and he's resurrected and the sin and the brokenness and the evil and the perversity and the depravity that we've all engaged in, the way we've hurt others, the nasty things we've said, the, the horrible things that we think or that we feel in the depth of our heart that no one else ever knows about, that we rarely even admit to ourselves, all of that stuff, all on Jesus, and he dies with it, and it's gone. And in its place, he returns to us forgiveness and new life.
And it bears noting also who wrote this genealogy. Who wrote it down? It was Matthew. Some of you know Matthew's story. He was Jewish, but he was a tax collector uh, who were known for their extortion. The Roman Empire, who was ruling Israel at this time, they would use Jews to do their own dirty work, right? Um, And so they had these tax collectors, and the tax collectors were known for extorting extra money out of the people that they were taxing. So they'd get the Roman tax, and they'd also get more than that for themselves and keep it. So tax collectors were the lowest of the low. They were despised, hated, shunned by good people. And I can only imagine, I'm speculating right now, I'm speculating, but I'm imagining Matthew sitting at a table with a candle writing, beginning to write his gospel. And he starts out, I'm going to write the genealogy of Jesus. And remember, it's the Holy Spirit that's, that's guiding him in this. And so he doesn't get very far in and he feels this tap on his shoulder from the Holy Spirit that says, put Tamar in there. I just wonder, and Matthew goes, who said that? Why would I put Tamar in there? But he's compelled to do it, so he writes her name into the genealogy. Just a few seconds later, it's Rahab. Then Ruth. Then Bathsheba. Bathsheba? But then I imagine it's starting to dawn on Matthew, and he's starting to catch this glimpse. And again, I, I admit I'm speculating, but I imagine tears just starting to run down Matthew's eyes and drip onto his manuscript as he realizes this was me. This is what Jesus did for me. All that extortion, all that hatred that was, all that invective that had been unleashed on me from others, Jesus looked past it. He saw me. He chose me. He took all that brokenness, all my sin. He died with it. And now I'm writing. He's chosen me to write part of his story. So, Matthew knew because he had experienced Jesus the Redeemer, the one who pays the ransom for the life of humanity. So this morning, I want to just close by addressing sort of two groups of people. The one group are those of you who maybe have never encountered Jesus as the Redeemer. Maybe all of this, even some of the vocabulary I've used this morning is totally new to you. You just know maybe you don't really like church that much. Maybe you don't like God that much. Maybe you don't even believe he exists. I don't know. But if we're honest with ourselves, we see that brokenness. We see the evil even within ourselves. We don't know what to do with that because we've tried to be good. We've tried to do what's right. And if we look back at our history, we just see this this wake of, of brokenness and pain and hurt. So if you haven't met Jesus yet, he, he Jesus the Redeemer, he is present right now and he's inviting you. He, look, I've, I've paid the ransom for your life. But any gift that's given has to be received, so it's offered to you. Will you accept it? Will you simply say, okay, Jesus, this is all new to me, but... There's a lot I don't understand, but I believe that you're the Son of God and I need your redemption. I accept that ransom that you paid in my place and now I'm yours because you belong to whoever pays the ransom for your life. So Jesus extends his offer of redemption to you this morning. Whether you choose it to accept it, that's up to you. And the other group, 
that I want to address are those of you, those of us who have already encountered Jesus as a redeemer, and we have given our lives to him, we, we've repented of our sin, we've given our sin to him and, and let him take it. But there's a particular temptation, I think, that we are prone to. And it's the temptation that after being redeemed, right, after Jesus pays for all that sin and brokenness, that any sin and brokenness from now on, I have to pay for. And I know that for me, the time that I felt this most poignantly was during the years that I was addicted to pornography, which I've referred to before. And I hated that. I just hated that I would, I would give in to that, that depravity and brokenness. And, and, at, and each time after, you know, after that episode was over, I would just be, I would be filled with, I mean, all, all kinds of emotions and sorrow and but I remember every time this temptation was, okay, I've got to be really good now for at least a couple days. I've got to not, not fall back into this for at least a couple days, maybe a week, so that I can be at peace with God again. So I can be back in his good graces. But I can't. And it's foolish to even think that way. It, it's a lie. Because I can't clean myself up. And to think that, okay, I've got to be really good now for a while so I can get back in good with God, what does that do? It keeps us away from Jesus. It's like, no, Jesus, you stay over there. I'm going to fix myself. I'm going to clean myself up. Then I'll come back to you and, uh, and, and, we, and we can be good. But the whole beauty of Jesus the Redeemer is that he reaches out to you. He's like, my daughter, my son, my creature, I've already paid for all this. Even the stuff that you haven't done yet, I've already paid for. So allowing our sin to keep us away from him again just compounds it, just makes it even worse. It keeps us away from him even longer. So he says to, to those of you who already know him, who already belong to him, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you sin, the worst place to be is trying to fix yourself. Come back to Jesus. Press in toward Jesus. Even if it's the thousandth time that you've fallen, that you've done that same stupid thing, that you had sworn up and down to yourself, you'd promise yourself you're never going to do again, and you did it, it doesn't change that it's already been paid for. Don't waste energy punishing yourself, trying to do something that you'll never be able to do, which is be good enough for God to accept you. We can only be good enough for God to accept us by allowing Jesus to pay that ransom, die in our place, and give us new life. So this morning, we get to celebrate Jesus the Redeemer in a unique and joyful way through water baptism. Four people who were broken beyond repair and recognized it, who were slaves to sin, who were unable to fix themselves, recognized their true circumstance, surrendered to Jesus, and accepted his death as the ransom for their freedom. And this morning, they are making a public declaration that they belong to Jesus, and they're declaring this through water baptism. And water baptism is a visible sign. There's so much power in this sign, right? Because it's a picture of death and burial going under the water, and then resurrection coming back up out of the water. So it's a visible sign that points to the invisible truth 
that the sin of these people has died and been buried with Jesus and that they themselves have risen with Jesus to new life. That's what this points to this morning. And so I'd like to invite the four baptismal candidates now to join me here on the stage for the baptismal vows. Yes, that means you. Go ahead. Come on. Come on, Jesse. Don't wait. Don't wait. And like I said, come to the middle. So each time we celebrate water baptisms here at First French Church, we ask the candidates to affirm their baptismal vows. And the reason for this isn't because there's something magical in these words, but because these words express a commitment so that everyone who's being baptized here understands, okay, we're all committing to the same thing. And the other thing I told you guys, I'm just gonna remind you of, you don't have to yell your answers, right? But don't mumble them either, all right? At the end of the vows, there'll be a question that I will direct to us, the, the, the family of believers here at First Friends Church. And if you agree, with what I ask you, then just respond by saying, we will. Candidates, Sarah, Valerie, Jesse, and Matthew. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you away from the love of God? Have you turned to Jesus Christ and accepted him as your savior? Do you put your whole trust in his grace and love? Do you promise to follow and obey him as your Lord? Will you persevere in resisting evil and whenever you fall into sin, repent? and turn to the Lord? Will you proclaim the gospel by word and by example? Will you seek to serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? First Friends Church, will you who witness these vows do all in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ? We will. Amen. Hi, my name is Valerie Thomas. I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home. I accepted Christ into my heart in seventh grade, and I remember that moment on a youth retreat. But in the years following that decision, I struggled with what it meant to be a Christian. I did not know what it meant to have a love relationship with the Lord. I think my spiritual life was weak because I was trying to do it myself instead of allowing God to work in my life. My later teens into my early 20s was a period in time that I flailed as a Christian. I made a few poor choices that stem from bad relationships and friendships. I think as a young person those areas of sin constantly nagged at me and made me feel I wasn't worthy. Even through the ups and downs of youth, God was still at work for me. He brought my husband Jeff into my life and blessed me with my soulmate and my best friend. As we started our life together, we kept attending church and trying to seek God, but something was missing for me in church.
I longed for more. And in 2007, my sister invited me to a women's conference in Kansas City called Come to the Fire. My life changed that weekend. All I can say was that God met me in a way that I will never forget. It was as if the speaker spoke right to me in that crowd of hundreds of people. She was sharing her testimony that matched mine in several ways. I remember a friend of my sister's came and prayed with me at the altar, and the freedom of Christ began. My shame was left at that altar, and my life changed because I began to read the Word daily, memorize it, and I had a hunger to hear God's voice. I began to understand what it meant to live a holy life in Christ and to obey His still, small voice. I only wanted His plan for my life. No more attitude of fear, but claiming God's promises when those feelings arise. I began to understand it truly is a faith journey, and He keeps revealing more and more along the way. I'm thankful to my sister for inviting me to, to that conference all those years ago and the special bond only sisters can have, for my family for continually encouraging and praying for me over the years. I am grateful to Titus Women and the discipleship opportunities that I have been blessed to be a part of. And finally, a special thank you to my mentor, Linda Boyette, for her prayers, love, and living example of what a love relationship with God looks like. And also, I want to thank Pastor Nathaniel and our church home here at First Friends. I have felt the Lord leading me to get baptized because I grew up in a de denomination where I had been baptized as an infant. I know that my salvation doesn't come from this step, but I do want to be obedient to the Lord according to His Word, and I just want you all to know that I love Jesus. So Valerie, based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your only Lord and Savior, it's my privilege, privilege and joy to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hi, I am Matthew McConnell. When I was born, the doctor thought my mom was going to have a miscarriage. I feel the Holy Spirit helped me still be alive. I was supposed to be a twin. As I got older, I was diagnosed with bipolar. I was introduced to sexual brokenness at a young age and took drugs to feel numb. My cousin took his life because of his own addiction. I was in and out of hospitals and lost connection with my family and friends. In 2021, I realized I needed God and started seeking Him. In December 2022, I surrendered my life to the Lord. I fell back into bad lifestyle and faced charges. I sought and found help at Restore Addiction Recovery. I left there, went back to smoking, and realized this wasn't for me. I surrendered to the Lord again and returned back to restore recovery. My life became more joyful and easier to deal with my bipolar, and I was less angry. I committed my life to Christ today by being baptized. 
Thank you, Mom and Dad, for your prayers. Thank you, Matt Sutter, for being my life coach. And thank you, Restore Addiction Recovery, for teaching me about the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew, based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your only Lord and Savior, it's my joy and pleasure to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jesse Schultz. I grew up knowing God and how Jesus died on the cross for us all. As a child, I would say the sinner's prayer, but as I got older, I strayed from Jesus, falling deeper into sin. I had an emptiness within me and searched for years for a purpose. I was unable to find any contentment in my life. There became a point in my life that I questioned God and if he was real. If he was real, what was my purpose? Along this journey, I met a lifelong friend and mentor. He started to attend this church because his then girlfriend, now wife, uh, attended this church. Every week he would encourage me to just try out this church, but I would push it off. He always gave me examples of what faith, repentance, and submission to God did for him. I could physically see the things God was doing in his life. After many months of asking, I finally decided to attend, and the very first sermon spoke to me. After months of attending and each sermon speaking something I could relate to, I knew the Holy Spirit was working in me. I learned about God and actually knowing Him as a Father and what faith really meant. In time, I reaffirmed my faith and repented of my sins. I asked for forgiveness and the strength to do what, what's right when I am weak. I asked God to help me hear His Spirit and focus on His loving authority. Today I am beyond blessed. He has softened my heart and opened my eyes to His glory. He has answered many prayers and given me a, a beautiful family and a new meaning for life. I want to proclaim my faith and show my obedience as I receive Christ and get baptized. They all say the same thing. It's warm. <laughs> Jesse, based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's my privilege, my joy to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Hi, my name is Sarah Moore. I'm 17 years old and a senior at Perry High School. I was born and raised in Canton, Ohio, where I've been a part of First French Church for my entire life. I'm the youngest of four kids. My amazing parents, Bob and Chris Moore, and my three older siblings, Rachel Moore, Seth Moore, and John Moore, 
have played an immense part in shaping me into the person that I am today. As I said before, I grew up in the church. I was taught from a very young age about Jesus and his love. Ever since I can remember, I knew the importance of loving Jesus and others, but it wasn't until I hit middle school that I really understood the importance of a relationship with God and my Christian faith. During middle school, I went through a season of doubt and fear. I questioned God's love and forgiveness, which caused me to drift apart from Him. Fear consumed every ounce of my being, and I doubted if God was really there for me. I knew He was real, but I doubted that He was real enough to save me. The summer going into my eighth grade year, I went on a mission trip to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There, God showed me what it means to give everything you have for Him. He saved me. With my soul on fire for God, I went back home with a purpose, to share Jesus with others. It was going well until another setback happened, COVID-19. This broke my consistent meetings with other believers, and I fell back into a worse state than my previous one. As I moved on towards high school, I went through my walk with God as a sleeping believer. I fell into new traps and built new strongholds that I could not break myself from. I made sports, activities, competitions, and other things my God. I was so ashamed of the things I had done that I thought I would have to do enough things to get myself ready to ask for God's mercy again. What I realized through these actions was that they actually led me further away from the only one who can save me from them. At my lowest point, I realized that I had no other choice but to go to God and see if He would take me back again. I'm like the prodigal son who ran away intentionally, only to find himself even more miserable without his father. It is a constant battle that I face every day. The enemy has not ceased to remind me of my past, but I have learned that God means what He says. He says that I am loved. He says that I am protected that I am forgiven, and that I am His daughter, whom He created with a purpose. I know the road that I face will not be easy. At some moments it will be discouraging, confusing, and even paralyzing. But I also know that the cross Christ bared is nothing compared to my own. I know that He promises to take every step with me, and even carry me if needed. Whatever I may face, I know I cannot do it without Jesus. I surrender my desires, my fears, my convictions, and my future to Jesus. I'm finished with listening to what the enemy has to say about me. I choose the truth that Jesus Christ gives me. So today, I dedicate myself to the everlasting Almighty God, Jesus Christ. I choose to live my life for the one who has saved me and continues to save me. I want every person who comes into my life to know about Jesus, and then I give my complete heart and soul to Him only. Today, I can honestly and joyfully say, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Sarah, Upon your affirmation and surrender to Jesus as your Lord and Savior,
It's my privilege and my joy to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There, you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m., and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week!